This program is brought to you by Pussy Magnets. Put an inch on your friends with a Pussy Magnet. Welcome, welcome, my lovely lumps. Or should I say lovely labs? I'm so thrilled to have you here in the Labia Lounge to yarn about all things sexuality, womanhood, holistic health, and everything in between. Your legs. <laughs> Ah, can never help myself. Anyway, we're going to have vag loads of real chats with real people about real shit. So buckle up, you're about to receive the sex ed that you never had and have a bloody good laugh while you're at it. Before we get stuck in, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this, the Manang people. It's an absolute privilege to be living and creating dope podcast content on Noongar country and I pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, if you're ready, let's flap and do this. (laughs) Oh God, is there such thing as too many vagina jokes in the one intro? (laughs) Whatever, I'm leaving it in. It's my podcast. Don't panic, you're not broken. Your sex education was a piece of shit. Get your flaps out and pull up the couch. It's the Labia Lounge. Hey, my darling labial ledgers, welcome back. Today I have a returning guest who I've had on before. I've got Cam Fraser, who I did an episode way back when I started the pod um, called Navigating Premature Ejaculation, Erectile Challenges, Masculinity and Men's Sexuality. Oh my God, that's a mouthful. That was like before I was, that was when I was really brand new to coming up with episode titles. So forgive me for the keyword stuffing, (laughs) Um, but it was a great episode. So if you haven't listened to that one, go back. Um, But just for some background on Cam, if you, if you haven't, heard that one or you're not aware. Cam is a certified professional sex coach and certified sexologist. Being a former tantric yoga teacher, his work integrates scientifically validated, medically accurate information about sexual health with sacred sexuality teachings from the mystery traditions. As a coach, he helps men go beyond surface-level sex and into full-bodied, self-expressed, pleasure-oriented sexual experiences free of anxiety or shame. Oh, yeah, get it. Great to have you back, Cam. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm excited to dive into today's topic as well. Yes. So, today we're going to have a chat about something that, like, I always stop and stop and read about when you're getting on getting on a soapbox about I love your rants about these this topic um and we're going to discuss how men's sexuality is over pathologized and over medicalized and how this affects the way that we look at sexual function the way men feel about their own sexuality and performance and also like how this all came about because we're in a bit of a clusterfuck at this at this point in time um something that your work is really like trying to undo and trying to educate on. So it's hard to know where to kind of launch in with this topic, but I guess let's just start right at the beginning. Do you have a sense of like when the overpathologization of this stuff all started? And I guess maybe um, it'd be awesome if you could just cover like what we mean by that as well, what we mean by the overpathologization or overmedicalization of of men's sexual sexuality. Sure, yeah. Uh, so they're somewhat related, the terms overpathologization and overmedicalization. The difference is that over 
pathologizing something is essentially like considering normal variations in sexual function. If we're talking sexuality, you know, related issues here. So normal variations in sexual function being considered uh, dysfunctional, right? So it's like, we've got this, this range of things that we can expect in our normal everyday functioning of our sexuality. And that range has gotten Smaller, 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 narrower, 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 and normal variations are now being considered dysfunctional or or issues. Um, they're being pathologized and so treated as like something that we need to fix. And then the over medicalizing mm-hmm. of sexuality, or in, or in you know what I speak about, male sexuality in particular, is those things that we've now pathologized, those normal variations in sexual functioning, and now being treated with medicine right with pharmaceuticals with that like the treatment of those things mm-hmm. is a medicalized treatment so um, that's what that means and so that the over the prefix over there is like in my opinion and in the opinion of other people who are kind of doing this work where we've gone like way beyond what is you know necessary in terms of pathologizing certain sexual dysfunctions and so certain sexual behaviors uh, and certain you know things that the body does and we've gone way you know, too far into treating things with pharmaceuticals rather than taking a, a different approach. So that's like the broad strokes of those two terms. Where that started happening, I was having a think about this. Um, I reckon we can probably, you know, there wasn't like a one single thing that happened and it's like, okay, now we've kind of you know started on this route. But I think there was like uh, in the like 19th century, so like the late 19th century, the like 1880s, 1890s, we had a bunch of uh, Germans and Austrians writing books about sexuality. So you got like Richard von Kraft Ebbing, for example, wrote his book Psychopathia Sexualis, which was released in 1886. Um, he was like a, one of the forefathers of modern day sexual medicine. And this all comes out of you know Germany, Austria, and then we see that kind of going into um, into like the uh, you know 20th century, so you know the 1910s, 1920s, uh, you know, we see the the studies around like sexuality being really academic and um, really scientific and really medical oriented. So like the the field of sexual medicine kind of is birthed in Berlin in Germany uh, in the 1910s and 20s. All those books, uh, especially the ones related to like um, sexual diversity and intersex issues and like trans health, all that stuff that was, you know, still being researched at that time. All those books were burned uh, by the Nazis in the, you know, 1930s. Uh, yeah. So we see like a lot of the research that had been done uh, in those early, early days be, be destroyed. Mm. Um, but like the, the transition was happening during that time of like, okay, we're going to study sexuality from like a scientific point of view, from a medical point of view, we're going to understand like, you know, we see like similar things happening in the field of endocrinology uh, and, you know, the looking at hormones, we see the same things in like neurology and stuff like that. So we're starting to see like the medicalized take on sexuality happening around that time. That's like, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. where it kind of starts to happen because prior to that sexuality is really governed by religious authorities and, um, you know, spiritual teachers. And, and then even before that, we look like towards the, the East, right? Cause this is kind of like happening in the West and there's a really useful way of describing these two approaches, you know, the, the way that we're approaching sexuality in the East and now the way that it's being approached in the West. Michel Foucault has this idea of Cynthia sexualis, which is the scientific study of sexuality, which is like, you know, what I was saying was happening in Germany. And then 
he used this other term, ars erotica, which is like the erotic arts, which is what he saw uh, the way that they approach sexuality in China and in India and in um, you know, Islamic countries as well, like the uh, study of erotology, so the study of eroticism. Um, so there's like this shift that we see in the West in particular, taking this medicalized route. Um, so that's where I, I see it like starting. And then over time, you know, like the 1960s, for example, we had Masters and Johnson. So they're like going deep into like understanding the response cycles of men and women and really like coming up with formulas, essentially. Like they came up with like a formula, like a, they were graphing sexual responses. So really taking this Western academic approach and like trying to understand this like formulaic approach to, to human sexuality. Then similarly in the 1960s, we had Viagra come out, right? So we'll probably talk about this in a minute, but like the medicalization part of it was something that people were were really trying to do with regards to you know treating erection issues and treating premature ejaculation and stuff like that like what's the what's the way that we can treat this with a me- you know some medicine but with the advancements in technology and and you know medicine delivery pharmaceutical delivery in the 1960s that's when we really saw like a jump in people um you know like being able to to do that mm-hmm. so viagra was released in 1990 but like all of that uh, precursors to Viagra kind of started in the sixties when we started seeing like a lot of those injectables and shit like that. And uh, I can talk a bit more into it, but like definitely it's jumped since yeah. the sixties in, in my opinion, like this, this trajectory of like really treating male sexuality in particular. I think there's a, there's, there's a difference in my opinion between approach between female sexuality and male sexuality, but like this idea that um, men are, uh, like machines. Right? I think like there's culture that's embedded into this as well. Like male sexuality or, or the male body is like, mm-hmm. you know, this thing that can malfunction you know, or is dysfunctional. And so we need to fix it by, you know, changing this part out or, you know, uh, and I think part of the reason why we have that approach mm-hmm. to male sexuality is because there's this opinion or belief that like for men, sex is purely physical and that there's no emotions attached to it and that like men aren't emotional and women are emotional. So for men, the quick fix or the easy fix is like the physical, like just, you know, some part of their body's broken. So we've got to fix this part of them. So treating them like a kind of like a machine that's, that's like I said, malfunctioning. So um, I think like the culture underneath it all is particularly here in the West, the way we think about masculinity is also influencing the way that we think about male sexuality and also the way that we study it as well. Like I mentioned Masters and Johnson and their sexual response models, which came out in 1966. Mm. And since then, the female sexual response model that Masters and Johnson published has been critically revised about nine times. And it's had these like really beautiful iterations where there's more nuance and complexity and more understanding and depth. And the male sexual response model has been revised once since then. So like there's this, at least in my opinion, like this reflection of the way that we think about female sexuality, which is like, it's really complicated and it's like really nuanced and like multi-orgasmic. And then we've got this approach to male sexuality, which is like, it's just linear. It's simple. We don't need to talk, but we don't need to, to look at it too much because men just jerk off and they just ejaculate and like, that's it. And so like the male sexual response model has no, like it doesn't discuss multiple ejaculations for men. It doesn't talk about like multiple orgasms, doesn't talk about prostate orgasms, doesn't talk about any of these things. It's just like, yeah. these are the four phases and and that's it. So um, yeah, I went on a bit of a tangent there, but hopefully that like, you know, gives you listeners and yourself like a bit of an understanding of the, it kind of started, you know, 1880s, 1890s. And then we saw like the, the slow uh, progression mm-hmm. of that to become, something where we are today and then advertising and shit like that is, is definitely a part of it today. But, um, 
yeah, that's kind of a brief little history. Yeah. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that, like any of that pretty much. I guess my field is so focused on female sexuality and it's interesting because as you're talking, I'm reflecting on even just the language that we use around, um, yeah, it is, it is kind of like men are this robotic thing that we're expecting to perform and if they have performance issues like you know even just the word perform like oh god horrible so much pressure for starters and then you know that's that's kind of a phrase that you might use when you're um you know you're testing a prototype for like some bit of machinery like you know like what's the performance score and stuff like that and you know when I was doing some of my earlier um exploration in like neo-tantra and stuff like that or sacred sexuality there would often be you know these workshops and they'd be like yep so like male tackle super simple super straightforward pretty much same from man to man you know do this get that result whereas like for like feminine sexual energy and feminine um body parts like the arousal processes are so much more complex and da 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 um and that was like a really standard um like opinion or or kind of like rule of thumb that was it was like women are complicated men are simple Mm -hmm. and um i just think that that's so misleading and so damaging yeah, and I think it, it's perpetuated by mm. the way that we research sexuality, the way that we talk about it in media. Um, and, you know, there's like this interesting modality of sexological bodywork, right, which is the, in my observation, the it's like this intermingling of the Western academic kind of like scientific study of sexuality with the erotic uh, approach, right, with that like artistic, erotic, sensual approach. And so mm-hmm. I think we're like slowly seeing the integration of the two approaches, you know, uh, and and so I am really interested to kind of like see where we go from here. But, you know, what I'm saying isn't necessarily new. There's people that have mm-hmm. been doing you know, there's a, a she's a feminist crit- critiquer of like Western scientific medicine names Leonor Tifa. And she's been talking about the over pathologization and over medicalization of specifically male sexuality for probably the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, so mm. like there's, there's people that are, that are talking wow. about it and critiquing yeah. it, but it's like typically within the academic space, you know, Leonor's a, a researcher, right? So she, she writes mm. research papers. And so it doesn't really get much more outside of that. Uh, so it's like, in my opinion, important for us to disseminate mm-hmm. that, you know, critique and so that we're going like, hey, look, the way that we're talking about male sexuality is not helpful and not healthy. And and when our first – and I get so many clients that come to see to me like for erection issues, for example, or even, you know, premature ejaculation issues. And before they've seen me, they've already gone to a urologist for a prescription of Viagra or a prescription of SSRIs, you know, which is yeah. what, what people are prescribing for – premature ejaculation they're prescribing low dose ssris which is antidepressants because the side effect of ssris is a low libido or an inhibited sensitivity so like they're not prescribing it because the primary effect is that it helps with premature ejaculation like viagra does right for um, Mm -hmm. erection issues they're doing it because the side effect is Mm -hmm. uh so like i'm getting so many guys saying like i've already tried this and it didn't work or i've already tried like their first port of call for dealing with like a sexual concern is the pharmaceuticals right and and so yeah. we and and one of the reasons why i think that is, is because we've yeah. just been bombarded with advertising bombarded with like all these these um sponsored posts and social mm-hmm. media there's so many like men's health apps which are talking about like 
the pharmaceutical, how easy it is to get pharmaceuticals. It's just like the first mm. thing that pops into guy's head is like, oh, I've got to deal with this by getting some medication. And what mm. I would like to see is that shift a little bit more. So rather than mm. the first, you know, decision that they make for managing their sexual concerns being like, I've got to go and get prescribed something being like, all right, what's my, what, what's, what's a more holistic way of dealing with this? You know, maybe I can do some breathing first. Maybe I can do some, you know, yeah. uh, anxiety releasing practices first. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'd love to see more of that come in, but mm-hmm. you don't make money that way. You know what I mean? Like these big companies oh. that are promoting pharmaceuticals yeah. don't have anything to gain from talking about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I know that the topic is, is men's sexuality, but like, as you're talking, I'm just like, yes. I mean, it happens with everything, like over pathologization and medicalization of like periods, contraception, you know, pregnancy and birth. Like it happens with female sexuality as well. It happens with freaking everything. Cause like, you know, the pharmaceutical company see a niche and see a way to make money and, and they just like put it in our heads that, you know, our first port of call should just be like, take this quick fix, like have this pill. And it's the same with like the pill, Mm -hmm. like the contraceptive pill, like so many people are taking that not for the primary, you know, purpose of contraception, but for like skin issues or for, you know, all these other things. And it's just like, oh my God. Yeah. It does my head in. Um, Yeah. And I think they're like, you know, it's important to clarify that there, there's a necessity of like, having some sort of understanding of like sexual pathology that needs to be treated with, you know, a a medical approach, right? Like that's, that's a necessity. So for example, people that have diabetes will often need to use Viagra because there's a a specific Mm. type of blood flow issue that's going on. So like they're, that's going to be helpful for them. But when that's, like I said, this is like the over medicalization, the over pathologization is really a problem. It's like when that's, you know, Mm. being used as every person, Mm who has erection issues, that's their approach is to take Viagra, then it's then there's yeah. an issue, right? So, like, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's, like, definitely circumstances and instances where yeah. that approach, mm-hmm. that medicalized approach is necessary and is valuable and is very helpful. Mm-hmm. But when that's the only approach that we're taking and that's the first mm-hmm. approach that people take, mm-hmm. um, I think we're, we're overdoing it. Mm. Oh, my God, totally. It should be, like, top of the food pyramid, sometimes food kind of, kind of situation where it's just, like, the last resort and it's in moderation and only, only, as necessary you know not just like default reach for that you know that pill or that prescription Mm. and that kind of leads into the the next thing that I was going to say is that you know there is there's valid arguments for like both sides like I think it can be helpful it can it serves a purpose and you know it it could be validating as well for there to be medical labels and like quote-unquote solutions to common sexual problems and challenges but then also having those medical labels so normalized, having the solutions, the pharmaceutical solutions so normalized, like I feel like that's part of the problem, you know, that it's now just so common to use terminology and identify with like labels like I I have erectile dysfunction or like I have premature ejaculation and stuff. So I'm wondering like do you feel like it's like when do you feel like it's helpful and and more, more commonly I would say like harmful where where what circumstances is it kind of like actually doing more damage than than good to have all of these labels and these solutions that are readily available and normalized for for men in particular Mm. yeah i've got a lot to say about this because um 
Yeah, I'm just trying to gather my thoughts where I want to start. So uh, I'll, sh- I'll share from my own like personal observation with the clients that come and see me. So I get guys that come and see me and they say, yeah, I've got erectile dysfunction. I've got premature ejaculation. They'll self-label, self-identify mm-hmm. as having these particular issues. Now, because of my um, studies, I'm well aware of the clinical criterion from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of like what it means to have erectile dysfunction as a clinical mm. diagnosis of what it means to have premature ejaculation as a clinical diagnosis. And 90 plus percent of the men that come and see me do not have a clinical diagnosis of premature ejaculation or erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. But that's the label that they're using, right? They're using mm-hmm. the same language as a clinical diagnosis for their erection issues, right? Or for their experience of like, coming before they want to right so i think mm-hmm. the because we don't talk about sex and sexuality publicly in a very constructive way like there's still a lot of stigma mm-hmm. and taboo about talking about sexuality and and, and sexual concerns particularly right so I, I think the language is very narrowing uh and limiting yeah. in terms of the way that we understand uh, like ourselves sexually like you know so you've got guys identifying with clinical you know diagnoses when they actually don't have it and i think that's over overdone uh, overdiagnosed mm-hmm. um that then leads me into some thoughts around the way that we study the prevalence rates at a population level of erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation because we ask men right like we get men to self-report right with no one's going around and sitting down with them over the course of several different sessions and like watching their penis, whether it gets hard or not in certain situations, we're giving them questionnaires and we're getting men to self-report. And so that is notoriously unreliable. If you look into like sex research and the reliability of self-reporting for both men and women, there's discrepancies, right? And so like that's important to take into consideration is like we're unreliable when we report, right? And and we tend to, especially because we've been, we've been, you know, fed this narrative that like, oh, if I get an erection one time, then I got erectile dysfunction. Like the anxiety mm-hmm. that causes is then like going to be uh, translated into your answers of that questionnaire. So um, like, for example, the questionnaire that is used to assess the prevalence rates of erectile dysfunction in, you know, the population at the population level is, uh, is from the 1990s, from the late uh, 1990s. It was created by, the company Pfizer who sells Viagra, which is an erectile dysfunction medication. So the questionnaire okay. itself, which was originally 20 questions long and then got shortened to five questions long. So it's just asking, you know, five questions to guys like, do you, you know, you know how often do you get erections? Uh, is it distressing to you? Like, it's very simple. And so my opinion, even though it's been like psychometrically validated, my opinion is that where we're seeing higher prevalence rates of what is the actual number of men who have erection issues Mm -hmm. in the population because of the overdiagnosis that's happening from these questionnaires, because guys are thinking, Oh, I've got erectile dysfunction because I have, you know, I struggle to get an erection a couple of times. And because that's what they've been told is erectile dysfunction because of the shift in the over pathologizing of normal variations in sexual functioning, we're getting higher prevalence rates uh, at a population level, you know, so it's overreported. Um, and I think Pfizer has a big, uh, and not to be like real conspiratorial and anti, you know, pharma, but like I think the the 
advertising that Pfizer has done for Viagra medication over the last 30 years has contributed to that immensely. Um, Because I get guys, like I said, who come and see me who struggle to get an erection one time and now they think they've got erectile dysfunction. Like that, it's, it just happened to me yesterday. I just had a guy yesterday, yesterday said so that's why it's like right on the top of my mind is because he oh struggled to get an erection once and now he thinks he's got erectile dysfunction. And so, um, yeah, so I think it's like really detrimental, um, that over labeling the, the, but, but it's yeah. reflective of the language. So I use that language because I know that's the language that men are using. So on my intake forms or yeah. whenever I'm talking about it, I'll ask men, do you think you have erectile dysfunction? They'll typically either say yes or no, depending on like what they share with me on the intake form. So I'll like begin by quote unquote colluding with them by using that same language. And then once they, you know, have shared with me a little bit more and I kind of realize that they don't have erectile dysfunction in a clinical sense, I'll start to, to shift the language. And I'll even, I'll just be explicit about it as well. I'll say like, hey, you actually don't have erectile dysfunction. You just have unreliable erections or you don't have as erections as firm as you would like them to be. That's fine. We can do stuff about that, right? Like you don't need medication based on my observation of you. Uh, same thing with premature ejaculation, right? If, if I talk about PE with a client, I'll start with him there and then I'll shift the language to be like, look, man, you just come before you're ready. You just come before you and your partner want to. Yeah. That's fine. We can do stuff about that. That's okay. You don't have a yeah. you don't have a dysfunction. You're not broken and and yeah. you know, um, and need fixing in that regard. Um, so I don't know where I was going with this. I just wanted to share about that. Um, <laughs> the yeah, I think I'll stop there. There's probably more I could say, but I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> I yeah, I had about ten different things pop up that I was like wanting to. Contri- I just feel like there's so much to say about this, and we could yeah go on a million tangents um but i yeah something that kind of stood out is just like that that all too common conflict of interest between like a pharmaceutical company and you know the research behind why their product is necessary and the marketing that they then do like it's just so ridiculous that that's even allowed and, and you know that they're they're basically like creating more of a problem than there is because, you know, uh, a kind of variation in sexual function and erection and all of that is very, very normal and very okay. It's just that we've been made to feel like it's not okay and it's not normal. And I'm wondering like, do you know much about, you know, say someone who has an issue with an erection like once or twice, then they fucking panic and obviously then that creates more anxiety um, and potentially issues with their quote-unquote performance and their erection um, in the future. And so they, obviously it's a vicious spiral and then maybe they get some Viagra. If they're using Viagra like by default when they don't actually really need it because there's no medical reason to be using it, is that creating a dependence is that getting in the way of like them getting real you know natural erections in the future like how does that impact them hey babe town so sorry to interrupt but i simply had to pop my head into the lounge here and mention another virtual lounge that you've got to get around It's the Labia Lounge Facebook group that I've created for listeners of the potty to mingle in. And there you'll find extra bits and bobs like freebies or discounts for offerings from guests who've been interviewed on the podcast, inspiring and thought-provoking conversations, and support from a community of labial legends. So head over to the links in the show notes and I'll hopefully see you in there. And now, back to the episode. 
Yeah, it's not necessarily getting in the way of them getting erections, but a very common experience that I'll hear from guys is, as you shared, like they have psychological erection issues, right? Because they're anxious Mm -hmm. and they're tense in their body. And we know that you need to be relaxed and in your parasympathetic Mm -hmm. nervous system for that blood flow to get engorged. And so if they're not like, you know, relaxed and they're tense and they're they're worried about performance and the expectations about, you know, what sex is supposed to look like and things like that, then taking Viagra isn't going to help. And I, I hear this so often from guys, particularly younger guys who are like, you know, turning to Viagra because it's their first, you know, mm-hmm. thing that they think that they need is they'll say, look, I took Viagra. It didn't, didn't help. I still couldn't get an erection. And like, that is because they don't have a medical issue or a physiological issue. And so Viagra is working on a physiological level. It's not working on a mental level. It's not working on a anxiety reducing level. Now I will stop myself there because there is an interesting placebo effect around Viagra, which I think is personally due to the amount of cultural stories behind Viagra, right? So like the little blue pill, right? It's like, if you take the little blue pill, you're going to get an erection. It's going to be fine, right? Like it's, it's your, your one pill quick fix solution to all your erection woes, right? Like that's the way Viagra has kind of been marketed. So there is this mm-hmm. cultural story around, if I take this little blue pill, I will have an erection. So there is a placebo effect on anxiety, right? Which is mm-hmm. interesting. And that's mm-hmm. what I've noticed as well is like there, it, cause, cause I'll get guys to, um, like, you know, within their, their, uh, the, the, the information they've shared with me, I'll get them to half their Viagra dosage, for example. So I'll say like, just, you know, halve your, halve your pill, cut your pill in half and take half of it. And they'll notice no differences whatsoever in their erection quality. Like mm-hmm. it would be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the reason why I get them to do that is to go to have this light bulb moment of like, Oh, I'm, I don't necessarily need this. And it's me that's having the impact on, on my erections, yeah. not the pill itself. Now, of course, you know, Viagra does help with blood flow and things like that. Like there's a reason why it's, it's prescribed in certain cases, like for diabetes, for example, because it's a, it's a, you know, for people that don't uh, know the way that Viagra works as a mechanism, it's what, what's known as a PDE5 inhibitor. So uh, PDE is, or PDE5, sorry, is the thing that breaks down nitric oxide in our body. So we need nitric oxide for our um, efficient blood flow and that efficient blood flow is what goes into the penis and fills up the erectile tissue. Now, when PDE5 starts to break down nitric oxide, then the blood flow starts to flow out and we lose our erection. So what PDE5 uh, inhibitors do is they stop PDE5 from breaking down nitric oxide. And so therefore you have more nitric oxide, more efficient blood flow and more engorgement. That's the physiological mechanisms of Viagra. That's all it does. But like I said, if you're anxious and tense and you're not in your parasympathetic nervous system and you're not turned on and you're not aroused, then that's not going to help you, right? Because your blood flow isn't the issue. Your nitric oxide breakdown isn't the issue. It's the fact that you're overthinking or overanalyzing or stressed out or anxious about your quote unquote performance. So like, that's what I want people to understand is like, that's the mechanisms that it's working on. But again, because there's that cultural story, there's like this weird phenomenon of like, oh, if I just take this blue pill and I reckon, and there's been a little bit of research done into this of like, Viagra placebos where they've just given people a little blue pill that's a Viagra and a little blue pill that's just a little blue sugar pill. And they've seen people have increased erections uh, totally. from taking the little blue pill sugar pill because yeah. of the cultural stories that we have around Viagra. And mm. um, so that's that's like an interesting little bit of sex research that I'm fascinated mm. by. Um, and so don't know where I was going with this. Uh, forgotten what your original question was, but I'll see if I can uh. bring it back around. Um, <laughs> uh, I think there's a, um, I think there's a, 
No, I've, I've lost it, Freya. I, can you remind me what the original question yeah, was? that's fine. Oh, my God. I don't even know. I think I just made a comment and you flirted on from that. I don't, don't even remember. But I think, like, you know, to tie a bow on that, it's what you're saying is, like, most most issues or challenges with erections are actually not a physiological issue. And therefore, Viagra isn't going to be that helpful because so much of it is psychological, except when the placebo effect is actually working on the psychological you know, side of that. And like something mm-hmm. that, um, something that I feel like is, is a bit of a sidestep, but something I want to make sure, make sure we talk about because I love your stuff on this. But I feel like if we weren't so disparaging about soft dicks in the first place and so afraid of a flaccid penis and like what that means about us or what, what our partners will think that that means about them and like how attractive they are or like whatever, we wouldn't be so desperate to try to fix this problem because we wouldn't see it as a problem in the first place, which like we really shouldn't see it as a problem in the first place. There's nothing wrong or abnormal with a flaccid penis. Um, but, you know, because there's so much pressure to have a rock hard dick and keep a rock hard dick um, and perform you know like that that adds in an intense like you know cocktail of like anxiety and and psychological hurdles um about getting and keeping an erection and so like do you feel as though um our attitude to soft penises is contributing to like feeling as though there's something wrong with us and therefore like needing help from from something as powerful as like a pill um, to just like fix it and sort it out and then, you know, be more of a man? (laughs) Uh, Short answer to that question is yes, 100%. You know, something that I uh, wanted to mention before I dive into like soft cocks, because I'm a big fan of talking about soft cocks, um, is (laughs) like a lot of the, a lot of the Viagra efficacy uh, research is done by Viagra, uh, you know, the, the, the Pfizer, the, the company that owns Viagra. So yeah. it's done by like yeah. Pfizer and its subsidiaries. So like that's also important to take into consideration when you're looking at Viagra research. Uh, and I also, you know, um, I was speaking before about like the increased prevalence rates of like erection issues, for example, when you'll see headlines in the, in the news or on like, you know, online, you know, magazine articles being like, there's like a, 800% rise in like erection issues, like erectile dysfunction is like there's this epidemic of erectile issues and like mm. uh, I think it's blown out of proportion, you know, and, and oftentimes yeah. porn is usually blamed, you know, and I mm-hmm. think that, and, and this is a, a bit of a side conversation, so I won't get too deep, too deep into it. But like whenever you see those, just remember that like the prevalence rates are self-reported, um, you know, the, the questionnaire is by Pfizer, right? So there's like uh, an investment in seeing those rises so they can sell more pharmaceuticals. And yeah, so it's just like my opinion is that it's like a, it's, it's a fake epidemic of erection issues. Like I don't actually think it's that high. And yes, I do think men probably think that they've got erection issues when really they don't and they're turning to Viagra. And so one of the reasons why you know, you'll see high prevalence rates is because some of that data comes from Viagra sales as well. So like erectile dysfunction medication sales. Um, so like we're seeing heaps more sales happening because there's heaps more advertising being done. And so again, I think it's a skewed, um, a skewed Aww. perception. Uh, so yeah. and when I think that that's used for fear mongering and then I think it's used to blame pornography. I'm just going to stop there. I just wanted to like mention that um, <laughs> just so we like cover um, small bases. Totally. Uh, but with regards to, yeah, flaccidness, like I think we have a fear of flaccidness, right? In general, yeah. people don't know what to do with flaccid penises. And mm-hmm. there's this symbology around 
erection and lack of erection, which is like you're broken if you don't have an erect penis, right? Or if you don't get an erection straight away. And this is where we lead into like, you know, there's a conversation to be had around unrealistic expectations of penises, right? Like a lot of people expect penises to act like dildos. And um, mm-hmm. there's a sex researcher, which is a sex therapist, not necessarily a researcher. His name's Chris Donahue. He has this great article on Medium called, you don't have erectile dysfunction, you have erectile disappointment. And mm. I think I love that because it's, you know, hitting on this idea of, of broadening the language that we use to describe our experiences, sexually speaking. And also it starts to talk about like, you know, getting an erection at the flick of a switch isn't really how erections work. You can move your finger up and down at your own beck and whim, but you can't do that with your cock. That's not how cocks work. And so to have this idea that you're supposed to get an erection immediately and that erections are supposed to stay hard all night long is also like, uh, that's not how bodies work. That's not how erections work. And, and there's even warning labels on bottles of Viagra saying if you have an erection for more than a couple of hours, you've got to consult a doctor, right? Because it's not normal or natural to have an erect cock for a long period of time because the blood flow needs to move and, you know, the nervous system needs to have this interplay between the sympathetic and parasympathetic branches, yeah. which affects erectile strength. So, like, the normalization of natural fluctuations and variations in erection strength is really necessary as part of like our sex educating. Um, but we have mm-hmm. like, we're not getting that. So we have these unrealistic expectations that a cock is supposed to get hard immediately, stay hard for a long time. And there'd be no changes in that. Um, so because that's like our default expectation, then when there's anything less than that, like a flaccid penis, for example, there's this story that comes up of like, something's wrong with me. I'm broken or I'm not uh, attracted to my partner or I am not like yeah. aroused uh, uh, and then, you know, a lot of our partners have similar stories. Like he doesn't like me. He's not turned on by me. He's not enjoying himself. He doesn't want to be here. And, mm. you know, part of that ed- education is around arousal non-concordance, right? Which is like, you can be subjectively mm-hmm. aroused. You can mentally turned on desire to have sex and want to be there, but your body just hasn't caught up. Right. And so you don't have an erection or, you know, the similar equivalent for, for women is like you you don't feel lubricated or you don't like have engorgement happening in the vulva uh, and and vice versa you can have an erection and you can have engorgement and you can have like the physiological signs of arousal but not actually be turned on and not actually want to have sex and not actually be desiring yeah. to be intimate um you know and that's one of the you know it's one of the reasons why uh there's you know uh poor research around um like male victims of sexual assault, for example, right? Because there's a mm-hmm. line of thinking which is based on the misunderstanding of arousal on concordance, right? Because we've conflated arousal with erection and vice versa, that if he was assaulted and he had an erection, then it means he must have enjoyed it and he must have been um, aroused by it and must have not been assault, right? And so that's where one of the myths of male sexuality, which is that men can't be raped, comes from. So, um, yeah. like, there's, yeah, so there's this, like, big misunderstanding of flaccid penises, there's a big fear around them. I often call it, call it the fear mm-hmm. of flaccidness. Uh, and, you know, on a less maybe intense uh, level, you know, there's there's kind of like a, what do I do with this? Like, I get a yeah. lot of women ask me, like, what do I do with this windsock <laughs> in between my partner's legs? How do I touch it? Like, what do I do with it? Because, you know, we, we never see that. Like, it, a lot of people, are, the only education they're getting about how to touch other people's bodies comes from pornography. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, a, mm-hmm. I'm not anti-porn by any means. I'm not pro-porn either. But, like, I think it's really important to recognize that there's no flaccid cocks in porn, 
right? Yeah. So no one knows yeah. what to do with a flaccid penis because there's no representation of it in a central, mm. um, you know, erotic, mm. sexy kind of way. So we have this like uh, this disconnect from from yeah. doing anything with it. And so that's why I think I, I've done you know flaccid penis play workshops before and yeah. just giving people ideas about how to like touch their partner's cock when it's not uh, not erect. And so. Yeah, so that was the long answer to your question. I know the short answer was yes, I do think that it's contributing. Um, and the long answer is everything I just shared. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's a podcast. We're not here for short answers. Um, and I was going to say, like, that's, I absolutely <laughs> loved. So I got, I got come to do a penis play little masterclass for my online course, Queen Out, which is for people with vaginas. And, um, it's a little bonus workshop for those that like, like to play with penises and i love that you included a section in there with like this flaccid um silicon dildo that you had to do demonstrations of different strokes and moves and ways of interacting with a soft cock because i hear that all the time as well like women just do not know how to interact or engage with a soft penis we also like really commonly attach meaning to it that isn't there so we take it personally they're not attracted mm-hmm. to us they're not as into this you know we we don't understand this arousal non-concordance piece commonly um and so like you know both parties are probably kind of looking down at that windsock as you as you called it <laughs> love that um and attaching all of this meaning and making it making it mean more making it personal when it really really doesn't have to be and that obviously puts more pressure on the situation and makes it more awkward or you know charged um and it's really important to know I I think we also just think like oh like what's a soft cock good for it doesn't it mustn't feel that pleasurable for the man it's not going to feel that pleasurable for me because it can't penetrate blah, blah blah but actually like you can do so much with soft cocks and there's you know there's soft penetration th- there is still pleasurable sensation for the penis owner to have it touched and stroked and there's a lot of things you can do but it's just not as not as common not as normalized you know not as well known about so yeah i think it's really important that you're kind of like getting that information out there and I loved that you included that in Queen Out because um yeah it's it's a common thing that I get asked and people don't people don't want to admit it or talk about it but they're freaked out by a soft cock because they don't know what to do with it and also because they're taking it personally (laughs) and thinking it means something about something you know that it just doesn't um yeah so Mm. talk to me about I just want to revisit because you're sort of mentioning that you know the that Pfizer owns Viagra and the questionnaire for like diagnosing, was it premature ejaculation or erectile dysfunction or um, was like 20 questions. Now it's like yeah, five questions. Function. Okay. Um, and it's, it used to be, I know a lot more difficult to get a diagnosis and get a prescription of something like Viagra. And it just feels like it's gotten easier and easier to the point where like the, literally the company that's making money off this is the one that's dictating who is eligible for it. Um, and it's, pra- it's practically as good as an over-the-counter drug, right? So, like, surely it's just being used unnecessarily all the fucking time. Do you, like, what? what's, yeah, to elaborate on that a little bit because I did a bit of a broad strokes job of that. But, yeah, Pfizer owns Viagra and now all of a sudden we can, like, sure. get, get Viagra super easily. Yeah, so Viagra is uh, the the patented brand name of the erectile dysfunction medication Tadalafil, and um, 
That was, like I said, patented by Pfizer. So they came up with the formula for this PDE5 inhibitor and they had a patent on it uh, for, I believe, about 30 years. If my, no, it shouldn't, it couldn't be that long, about 20 years. And in 2021, that patent expired. So, um, and, and Pfizer tried, they tried, they put appeals in, they tried to get it patented for longer. And the reason why, so they could have a monopoly on the erectile dysfunction market, right? So they um, were the only ones that could sell, you know, Tadalafil. There's, now there's Sildenafil as well. Uh, and there's, um, which is oftentimes uh, under the name of Cialis. And then there's Levitra as well, which is another iteration. So there's slight tweaks to this original um, chemical compound. Um, someone will probably correct me on the way to pronounce those, or maybe I got the name switched up. I'm sure, <laughs> but like that's that's the broad strokes kind of like understanding of of yes, it was uh, it was patented as a particular chemical compound for a certain amount of years. Pfizer tried to get it patented for longer so they could maintain that monopoly, but in 2021 that patent expired, and that's when we see a proliferation of um, as you kind of mentioned more quote unquote over the counter. They're not, mm-hmm. it, you know, and it's and it's interesting because there's been um, there's been restrictions lifted in some countries so for example in the uk it is over the counter now you can you don't need a prescription for erectile dysfunction medication in the united kingdom you do still here in australia um and i'll I'll speak to that in just a second and similarly in america but it's it's different on a state-by-state basis depending on like where you are because they do their own fucking thing over there um and so (laughs) the uh so the patents you know run out and then we get we, we see a proliferation of like off brand or off label, you know, um, versions right. of quote unquote yeah. Viagra or, you know, this PD5 inhibitor. And in conjunction with that, COVID happened, right? And so mm. the um, whole shift in the way that we receive prescriptions and medical advice goes online, you know, we, and we see this massive increase in telehealth and telemedicine. So, you know, people are calling up their doctors or more realistically people are jumping on apps on on men's health apps for example and so you know i'll just name the apps you know you can bleep these out if you don't want to have them in your your (laughs) podcast but you know you've got pilot for example you've got um you've got mosh you've got uh, ami you have um mojo there's a whole bunch of them right and they're kind of like in the public perception they're being lauded as good things because they're talking more about men's health and like they're talking more about like sexual issues for men and like okay sure credit where credit's due yes they're making those conversations more mainstream however what they're doing is they're making those conversations medicalized conversations right they're talking about if you've got a sexual issue here's a here's a prescription for viagra right so they make it much more easy to get a prescription because you just fill in a little questionnaire. Typically, you fill in a version of that five-question questionnaire from, um, again, which was created by Pfizer as a way to, you know, see if people should be prescribed. So there's like a vested mm-hmm. interest in, in them over-prescribing. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, and, and the reason why I know that it's very easy is because I did it. I just jumped on one of these apps. Mm. I won't say which one. I lied on the questionnaire and I was able to get a prescription box of Viagra sent to my house. It wasn't Viagra. Mm. It was, you know, the, yeah. the off-brand um, from their yeah. own pharmacy that they've partnered with uh, and get it sent directly to my door. So it's like become very, very easy for your like first port of call to be, oh, I need medication for this. Now I can just jump on an app. Mm-hmm. I can lie on this questionnaire or I can, you know, 
overreport, which again is very much happening. A lot of people like overreporting their instances of erection issues because they think that they have erectile dysfunction because that's the label that they've been given by the advertising that they've seen. Again, it's this like kind of pipeline. Uh, and so then they, you know, and, and, you know, a doctor, I had no consultation with a doctor. I had no one check in and be like, hey, are you sure? Like, do you need anything? And that, it was just like, yep, cool, signed mm-hmm. off and, and sent to you. So it's become very easy now to be able to get erectile dysfunction medication. And like we're seeing similar things with regards to SSRIs for premature ejaculation, right? Like people are prescribing mm-hmm. antidepressants at low doses to help with premature ejaculation. And then that's also like, I, I reckon that's more of a concern than, than Viagra is. Because again, Viagra, all it really does is help with blood flow. So there's no... Like there are some side effects, of course, with Viagra. Like I don't want to um, say that there's not. You know, there's issues with sinuses and um, can sometimes have some, some issues on your vision and also on your heart if you're taking other medications like blood thinners. So like there are side effects, don't get me wrong, but I think there's probably more concerning side effects from SSRIs than there are from PDE5 yeah. inhibitors. Um, yeah. So like that's an interesting area that I haven't seen too many people talk about. Um But yeah, so like that's been like a little bit of the history, right? It's like it, it prior to Viagra, we had the precursors, which were like injectables. This is a really interesting history, like sexual medicine, medicine history. There's like um, things that like, you know, that you would have to put a needle into your dick with, right? Like that's how you would get uh, your, your Viagra prior to Viagra existing was like, it was, it was injectables. Um, And so, you know, you know, fascinating history and, and thank God we don't have to do that anymore for the people that need it, right? Like the, the um, oral uh, treatment mm. with regards to appeal is, is much more, you know, much less invasive, I should say. Uh, so that's fantastic. Mm. But, um, but yeah, so it used to be very difficult to get something to treat. And then in the 1990s, uh, so like 1993, Viagra was patented. And then 1998, it was released to the American market. And then since like, I mean, the first three years, they, they, and this is, you know, in early 2000s currency, they spent over $300 million on advertising. And then since then, in the last 20 years, they spent several billion dollars on advertising for this, this, um, oh you know, erectile dysfunction medication. And, um, and it's gone from, you know, you, you might recall some old Viagra commercials or Pfizer commercials, which are like typically old folks. You know, they're like sitting on a beach somewhere, like hugging, or they're like on a yacht and, you know, they're on a sailboat or whatever. And it's just like old people looking, you know, happy and, and, you know, obviously the implication being that they're having sex now because he's got an erection. Uh, but the, the way that the advertising has shifted now, and you can look at this, you can go back and look at, you know, 20 years ago, the, the commercials that were being used to the commercials today and, and look at the ones in between. And the demographic has gotten younger and younger and younger and younger. Mm-hmm. And we're now seeing guys, I've seen guys on on you know social media ads that are younger than me, right? I'm, I turned thirty this year, and they're they're definitely they at least look younger than me. But you know, I can it's pretty clear mm. that they're in their mm-hmm. early to mid twenties, and like that's a stark contrast for the way that we were advertising. Well, I say we were advertising; I wasn't doing shit. But you know, the way that Pfizer was advertising <laughs> erectile dysfunction medication twenty years ago, like the demographic has just mm-hmm. shifted completely. So um, I think that has a lot to say about like the. Again, I don't. I don't need to mean in far nefarious or like you know conspiratorial, but like the the marketing agenda, right? The the profit driven agenda is to get more people totally. onto you know Viagra prescriptions or you know just to make money from it, and it's and it's expected to 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 over the next five to ten years be like an eight point two billion dollar industry that just like sees exponential growth, and and so that that that's oh been projected. Um, so it's you know it's it's a business it's a business strategy, right? It's like it's a way to make money. Oh my god it's so scary yeah it totally is and that was like 
that was you kind of already segued into my next topic which was about like how the advertising is yeah kind of like changing the demographic that uses it because it's normalizing just casual use of of you know erectile medications for like a lot younger people and you know some of the ads Mm. that I've seen you repost about erectile dysfunction meds like pretty outrageous like I mean clever so clever um these are like marketing strategist like geniuses like you know they've probably got psychologists involved like these big companies like they know what's up they know how to fucking make us feel like we need something um and also just like make it very normalized in the mainstream so um yeah do you want to like elaborate a bit on some of the like more recent marketing campaigns and how that actually makes men feel yeah, the biggest change has been like where the marketing is taking place, right? Because these are ads on social media. Everything that I've shared, um, you know, that you are referring to has been stuff that I've screen grabbed, screen recorded from mm-hmm. sponsored posts that I've seen on my Instagram feed. Like, because I click on them, I'm there like, you know, doing like some some counter insurgency kind of research, you know, <laughs> on these uh, on these ads. So I click on them when I can, so like so I get them to to, to pop up more often because um, I see yeah. some really like okay, I, I have a bias here as well because like I it fucking pisses me off that they're allowed to put ads up and I'm not yes, right. So like right? I, that, that shits me to tears. Is that oh. like I get me and other sexuality you know, educators get mm-hmm. get shit canned by these social media platforms and mm-hmm. then we've got like these big pharmaceutical companies and like apps Ugh. that have a lot of money to spend like yeah. getting heaps of airtime. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's just mm-hmm. one thing yeah. that I, I just want to say like <laughs> I definitely have a bias there that I'm, I'm annoyed about um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah the so like that's the biggest change that I've noticed is like the the shift of where these ads are taking place so we know that people that are on social media uh, it's a younger demographic of course and then you write the way that they create these ads like they're very catchy and they're very like you know young person oriented or like you know mid-20s millennial kind of oriented um and so i think that's like a a, a key metric let's mm-hmm. say that has changed a key measurement to to be mindful of um and then yeah, the, the language has kind of shifted as well into much more of a um, like recreational use as opposed to clinical use, right? Like a lot of the mm-hmm. early Pfizer advertising for Viagra was um, like you know, if you've got these conditions, like if you're aging and if you have diabetes or if you have these medical mm-hmm. issues, like this is going to be helpful for you. And that isn't really talked about anymore in, in a lot of these ads it's more like hey like if you want to have better sex if you want to like connect more with your partner is your relationship struggling mm-hmm. like it's the medical language has been taken out of it and it's much more of like a mm-hmm. recreational bent to it as well now um mm-hmm. yes but still a medical you know, I solution see, and I, I don't yeah totally it's still a pharmaceutical intervention um mm-hmm. and you know i don't want to uh bad talk my colleagues but like something that i think is contributing to this is, um, and I mentioned it before, and I just want to circle back around to it, is like we're blaming porn as like the only issue. Like th- that's the only reason why guys are having erection issues, right? They've got porn-induced erectile dysfunction and there's like a bunch of articles and, and you know, like I said, my colleagues like talking about like how porn is the reason why men have these erection issues. And again, that's overblown. Like, yes, there's some contributing factor there. And if guys are like, you know, really psychologically being aroused by a specific thing from pornography that's not happening in their real life and they've conditioned themselves to this particular stimulus. Yes, it's going to have an impact. 
But there's so much other things going on with regards to like the increased prevalence rates of erection issues. So like mm-hmm. to just go, to just ignore all that and just lay the feet solely at the, uh, lay the blame solely at the feet of porn is like not helping, at least in my opinion. So like I try to, mm-hmm. that's why I speak about it. Cause I don't see a lot of my colleagues like really going into that side of things and recognizing a lot of those other, um, you know, all of the nuance to it. Um, so yeah, just want to like, I don't know, like I don't want to mention mm. names, but I've, I've seen some of my colleagues do that and I'm not like, you know, I, I just wish they would like do a little bit more um, research into, you know, the the mm. cultural aspects of, of erectile issues. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, porn definitely, definitely has an impact, a negative impact, but I think it's so much more nuanced and there's like many, many, many different sources for the the challenges nowadays. Do you want to like do a bit of a sweep of like some of the other ones that aren't getting as much attention or airtime that are actually really like contributing to challenges with with men's sexual function yeah i mean in my observation with the clients that i'm working with it's uh anxiety induced right like and and we can label that as performance anxiety but um you know that's a that's uh psychological but there you know there's um like there isn't a one size fits all erectile dysfunction. So, you know, there's um, psychological, but there's also um, like physiological as well. There could be some physiological issues, which um, you know, could be contributing to it. So like, for example, if you've got tension in your lower back or if you've got mm-hmm. um, like hypertonic pelvic floor, things like that, mm-hmm. but then there's also, mm-hmm. uh, it could be an injury that you've sustained. A lot of like professional bike riders, for example, or people that just like do a lot of bike riding often have erection issues because of the pressure that's placed mm-hmm. onto the perineum and the bruising that happens there oh. and like the tension that's built up. Um, wow. Then there's, there's like, um, you know, there's vascular erectile dysfunction. So there's issues with blood flow and constriction of the blood vessels or, you know, there's um, uh, neurological issues. So it's like neurological ED, which is related to, mm. you know, the, the firing of the nervous system, particularly the parasympathetic branch, because that's what we need for engorgement and the pinching of the, the, um, the pinching of the, uh, what are they called? The veins, mm-hmm. right? For the blood to flow out. Like that's a nervous system response. Mm-hmm. So like the nerves need to be firing correctly for those things to be, to be closed down so you can keep the blood mm-hmm. there. There's iatrogenic ED, which is like medication induced erectile dysfunction. So people that are taking too much SSRIs, for example, mm-hmm. one of their yeah. side effects is that they're having erection issues. Um, so there could be other medications that they're taking. So blood thinning medications, for example, might, um, be, um, making the blood like not, uh, you know, pool enough in the cock. And so like the erection is, is, um, you know, uh, not maintainable. So there's like a bunch of reasons why. Um, but I, I personally believe that the, the main reason is what we've kind of covered here. Like it's the anxiety, it's the anxiety from, mm-hmm. you know, the expectation and the pressure put on the, a yeah. penis and it needing to be hard immediately and stay hard for a long time. That coupled with the fear of if I don't have a hard, hard cock, what is that going to mean? What's the you know, the unspoken symbolism. It's the phallocentric approach that we have to sex, which is like sex can only happen when there's a hard cock involved. Mm-hmm. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, diversifying our sexual experiences is a really important part of that. Um, yeah. You know, there's the expectations that come like, you know, from pornography, like the, you know, when was the last time you saw a flaccid penis in porn? They're all always hard all the time. They have no issues getting hard. What you don't see behind the scenes is a lot of those guys are using pharmaceuticals is, you know, I talked about injectables before. There's a long history of 
penile injectables in professional pornography as well because you know you, you know, if you're shooting for eight hours a day you've got to make sure you, yeah. you can get hard right and make sure that you mm. can you know lit- literally perform because it is a performance right yeah. in pornography so there's a lot of um you know erectile and enhancement uh pharmaceuticals being used in the pornography industry which isn't really talked about by you know mainstream folks um so like yeah just all these yeah. um but yeah, and, and then the, the the self-diagnosing. So I think there's a lot of a lot of things happening where psychologically mm-hmm. it's anxiety that's causing the and, and unrealistic expectations that's causing the erection issues. When yeah. um yeah, so when we talk about yeah, erections, I think that's that's where mm-hmm. we should be focusing our attention, not necessarily on the on the medicalized version. I mean that those are important conversations, but I think generally speaking, it's the, yeah. the psychological side of things that needs to be addressed. Yeah, yeah. And like you were saying earlier, like it like so much of the time there isn't actually a necessity for a medical or a pharmaceutical solution. It could actually just be solved by like, you know, some specialized therapy and some education or practices or like even just a you know, ideally a mm-hmm. whole cultural attitude shift and a rebranding of soft penises and male sexuality. You know, there's so many other things that really should be being addressed you know, from a holistic standpoint rather than, you know, throwing throwing medication at it. But that's pretty fucking common these days, isn't it? So um, great that you're at least doing that work and working, you know, with men um, through your business as well to just like really help them avoid needing to take medication or reaching for that as a first, you know, solution. Um, hey, me again. If you'd like to support the potty and you've already given it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on, I want to mention that you can buy some really dope merch from the website and get yourself a labia lounge tote, tea, togs. Yep, you heard that right. I even have labia lounge bathers or a cute fanny pack if that'd blow your hair back. So uh, if fashion isn't your passion, though, you can donate to my Buy Me A Coffee donation page, which is actually called Buy Me A Soy Chai Latte because... I'll be the first to admit, I'm a bit of a Melbourne cafe tosser like that. And yes, that is my coffee order. (laughs) You can do a once-off donation or an ongoing membership and sponsor me for as little as three fat ones a month. And I also have a Sunroom profile over on the Sunroom app, as I've mentioned. And I also offer one-on-one coaching and online courses that'll help you level up your sex life and relationship with yourself and others in a really big way. So every bit helps because it ain't cheap to put out a sweet podcast uh, into the world every week out of my own pocket. So I will be undyingly grateful if you support me and my biz financially in any of these ways. And if you like, I'll even give you a mental BJ with my mind from the lounge itself. Saucy. And um, I'll pop the links in the show notes. Thank you. Later. Do we have time? Do you have a TMI story? Because I do want to get a little segment in. We didn't do Get Pregnant and Die because we we did that in our first episode together. But before we wrap up and I ask you for your final thoughts on this topic, can we just like shuffle over to the TMI <laughs> segment real quick? Sure. Yeah. Happy to do, this, to do it. Um. Uh, and I'm putting you on the spot, but is there any, um, you know, story that springs to mind? doesn't have to be related to what we're talking about at the moment, but, yeah, it's a story that's a bit TMI that might be, you know, interesting or helpful for people to, to hear about. Um, yeah, and I can tie this into 
what we've been talking about, which is a um, incident where I I personally uh, injured my penis, and that resulted in some erection difficulties. And so the injury that I sustained was from mm-hmm. penetrative sex, and it was a uh, so I. It's going to sound horrible. So listeners, you know, if you squeamish, uh, so I, I tore the skin of my frenulum. So for those of you that don't know, the frenulum is the, yeah, it's horrible, right? Um, I still get a little bit sick in my stomach thinking about it. Uh, but the, the frenulum is the piece of skin. Um, so I'm, I'm uncircumcised and, um, the piece of skin that, uh, goes on the underside of the head of the penis, that kind of connects the uh, foreskin when it's retracted to the head of the penis, like the upside down V shape uh, area on the underside of the head of the penis. <laughs> so that piece is the banjo string. Yeah, there we go. Um, for those of you who are uh, interested in the colloquialism, the, uh, and it's, and it's relatively f- like fragile. It's like, just like a, like the banjo string is, is what sums it up. Like it's quite, quite um, thin and yes, yeah, so having yep. some pretty vigorous, um, yeah, some v- vigorous penetrative sex and, um, and in a certain position and it was, uh, yeah. And so it just, it, it, it mm. tore. Uh, so, uh, there was like a lot of blood surprisingly a lot of, well, not surprisingly, I suppose, cause if you've got an erection, there's a lot of blood there. And so, yeah. um, you know, there was going to be a lot of blood that, <laughs> that came out, even though it was quite a small tear. Um, but, uh, but that like, you know, the reason why I share this is because then through the healing process, like, getting an erection was painful, right? For a certain amount of time. And so that physiology, like my body held on to that trauma, held on to that information, right? Of like, mm. oh, getting an erection for the next couple of weeks, like that was a painful experience. So then when I went back to, like when I was fully healed and there was no mm. pain physically, there was still this like little psychological association of like, oh, getting an erection is going totally. to hurt me. And so yeah. there was a period of time where I was like re- learning a little bit like how to be comfortable getting erection how to like be gentle with my cock again how to like you know welcome it back essentially after being you know in rehab um you know like a muscle you know like you you hurt your muscle you don't go straight back into smashing your favorite you know workout you ease yourself back in right so that was um an experience that i had which i had to had to do right with my partner and so um yeah so yeah so i like i share that because like there's there's Think, you know, and, and you might not have an injury that's like that extreme, but you might have an experience that's really negative and causes like some either physical mm-hmm. pain or like psychologically makes you feel really shit. And then the next time there's an association there, right? So that may contribute to some erection yeah. issues or it may contribute to like your lack of like wanting to be in that space in that moment or mm-hmm. like the, the desire that you feel. And so it might require a little bit of nurturing, right? It might require mm-hmm. a little bit of like welcoming your body back in of, being slow of touching of you know, being just giving yourself permission, right. And the grace to learn about your body and to be um, sensual with it and to, to yeah, give it the time to, to get aroused and, and to feel good about, you know, the sensations that you're experiencing. So, yeah. So that's, yeah. and I've shared that probably on a couple of other podcasts. You're probably like one of three that I've shared that story. So it's out there. I, I don't feel you know, embarrassed about sharing it because I've shared it before, but um, it's related, I suppose, to, to this. Totally. Yeah, and it's it's sort of like a perfect example of what I was trying to describe earlier, how like, you know, often these 
uh, challenges with erection that have now manifested in this sort of vicious cycle that keeps repeating, like they might have come about from a physical injury or, or, a, or a sort of, you know, an actual tangible thing that happened that has then kind of gotten us into this headspace of like fear and anxiety that then perpetuates itself and, and presents as like an ongoing problem. Um, but that doesn't mean like we need to do it, you know, have like a drug for that. That means like we really need to excavate and go back to like f- figuring out what the root cause is and uncovering some layers. And like I've had, you know, spoken to so many clients who might be struggling with an issue that now is very um, pathologized and they're being offered these medical solutions, like something that comes to mind um, for for females is like vaginismus you know there's really contraction lots of painful you know painful sex pain during penetration and stuff and usually that's come about from something that is no longer actually physically an issue but the body is responding in this like physical way to like a psychological you know fear and anxiety around that area of the body or around penetration or around trusting someone to like let them in Um, and I imagine it's very similar with like erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation like maybe the initial thing that started kick-started it and and made it a challenge for like a short period of time has now disappeared and is no longer an issue but the psychological um you know self-perpetuating like the self-fulfilling prophecy of that and the anxiety that comes with with this expectation that like this is gonna we're we're not gonna be able to get an erection or it's gonna go away or like oh what's gonna happen um is actually now the thing creating the problem. So, like, yeah, finding finding the root cause super important, and like approaching it very compassionately mm. and gently, and with a lot of like nuance and understanding of how complex um, and sensitive our bodies are. You know, they're not machines to just like perform on cue. Yeah, um, and that you know brings me back to Chris Donahue's article. You don't have erectile dysfunction; you have erectile disappointment right? Like there's so many, so there's so much value in it's like unpacking your expectations about what, you, you know, your body should mm-hmm. or shouldn't do and stop putting yourself in a box, you know, with regards to your sexual experiences. Like there's, yeah. um, yeah, that's like a lot of the work that I do is just giving men the permission to explore themselves and to not, you know, yeah. have such rigid expectations about their body. And then when they do that, they start to have more pleasurable, more fun experiences, both alone and with their partner. And because they're being mm. more present and having more fun and experiencing more pleasure, the sexual dysfunction mm. issues that they had go away because they're not anxious about their sex anymore. It's fun and enjoyable for them. Mm. And so they're able to relax into it. And the, the, you know, the erection issues don't manifest because they're not, you know, stressed out. Totally. Yeah. All right. Amazing conversation. I could chat with you forever about this stuff. And if people are curious to know more, Cam goes into so much detail in his content, you know, his podcast, blog, Instagram, TikTok, all of it. Um, You're a content machine. (laughs) So I'd highly recommend people go and follow him. I'll put Cam's details in the show notes. Um, Thank you so much, Cam. I've loved this chat. Yeah, no worries at all. I can share with you a link. Uh, I used to have a YouTube account, but it's been deleted again. You know, oh, but God. the other big pharma companies <laughs> haven't. Uh, that's my little gripe. Uh, but I've got a video. Uh, it's on the platform Vimeo, and um, uh-huh. it's a it's a like a forty minute long video about. It's a deep dive into the way that erectile dysfunction is portrayed in 
mainstream media. And so mm. if you, if your listeners you know, like this conversation, they're mm. going to like that video because it's like mm. unpacking the way that we portray it uh, and represent so it. And, you know, it's oftentimes framed as like a big joke and male sexual dysfunction is funny and it's played for comedic effects and, you know, Viagra is valorized in a lot of these uh, representations mm-hmm. in mainstream media. So all these movies and TV shows that you've seen. Um, so, yeah, I'll put that. I'll send it to you, uh, Freya, and you can put it in the show notes for people that are interested in going on yeah. a bit of a deeper dive into the mainstream media that's contributed to this. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, amazing. That's perfect. Thank you. I'll definitely, definitely uh, grab that off you. Um, beautiful. All right. That is a wrap for today. Thanks, Cam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excuse the interruption, my loves, but I'm shamelessly seeking reviews and five-star ratings for the potty because, as I'm sure you've noticed by now, it's pretty fab. And the more people who get to hear it, the more people it can help. Reviews and ratings help me curry favor with the algorithmic gods and get suggested to other listeners to check out. Plus, they make me feel really good and appreciated as I continue to pour my heart and soul into creating this baby for you. And I promise I don't maz over them or anything. I mostly just tuck them away for a rainy day when I'm filled with self-doubt and existential dread about being self-employed, which is fairly frequently. (laughs) So you see, leaving a review really does make a difference and it's an easy little act of support that you can take in just a minute or two by either going to Spotify and leaving five stars for the show or writing a written review and leaving five stars over on Apple Podcasts. Choose your poison, or if you're a real overachiever, you could do both. Whoa now. If you are writing a review, though, just be sure to only use G-rated words, because despite the fact that this is a podcast about sexuality, words like sex can be censored and your review won't actually show up. Lame. Anyway, oh, oh, what was that? Oh, you're going to go do it right now while I wait. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great idea. May as well just quickly click that five-star button before we get on with it and, you know, like forget about it and get on with your day. Um, um, oh, I'm hearing them roll in. I'm hearing those five stars. <laughs> oh my God, I make myself cringe. Anyway, uh, thank you much, Lee. You're a total gem. And that's it, darling hearts. Thank you for stopping by the Labia Lounge. Your bum groove in the couch will be right where you left it, just waiting for you to sink back in for some more double L action next time. And in the meantime, if you'd be a dear and subscribe, share this episode, or leave a review on iTunes, then you can pat yourself on the snatch because that, my dear, is a downright act of sex-positive feminist activism. And you'd be supporting my vision to educate, empower, demystify, and destigmatize with this here podcast. Also, I'm always open to feedback, topic ideas that you'd love to hear covered, or guest suggestions. So feel free to get in touch via my website at freyagraph.com or say hey over on Insta. My handle is Freya underscore graph underscore YMT, and I seriously hope you're following me on there because damn, we have fun. We have fun. Anyway, later labial legends. I'll see you next time.